Hello, you're listening to the Arcadis podcast series on advances in remediation. Today, we are speaking with Paul Knightley about the multiple lines of evidence approach he and his team are using to identify and evaluate abandoned uranium mines. Paul, can you start by introducing yourself? My name is Paul Knightley. I'm a geologist. I've been with Arcadis for about nine years now. Um, and for the last six years, the vast majority of the work that I've been involved with has been on radiological projects and specifically working on abandoned uranium mines um, on the Navajo Nation and across uh, the Four Corners uh, region, mostly in, uh, in Arizona and uh, New Mexico. Thank you for being here. Let's get into our discussion about your article on the multiple lines of evidence approach. What are the challenges with identifying radiologically impacted areas near surface uranium mines? Yeah, so that really gets to the crux of the methods that we've developed for evaluating abandoned uranium mines out on the Navajo Nation. So taking a step back, um, the US EPA established uh, a couple of key terms for characterizing and uh, defining types of radiological waste. So there's NORM, which is naturally occurring radioactive material. That's um, radiation that is a part of the environment. It's been a part of the Earth's environment for um, millions to, uh, to billions of years. And then there's technologically enhanced NORM or T-NORM, which is uh, naturally occurring radioactive material that has been either physically or chemically enhanced in a manner that makes it more readily transportable um, either in the environment or uh, makes its uptake into uh, human health pathways easier than it would have been if it was left undisturbed. So where that becomes a challenge in evaluating abandoned uranium mines um, to determine the total waste footprint, you, you end up with a couple of scenarios. The first and easiest scenario is you have a uranium mine that was underground. Um, so you have your source material coming up uh, from thousands of feet below the ground surface. Any radiologically elevated material that is then at the surface near that mine uh, is pretty easily characterized as being T-norm and would fall under um, the EPA's jurisdiction and um, on these sites specifically under CERCLA as being material that needs to be cleaned up and removed from the site. Where it becomes a challenge with surface mines where the uranium ore body occurred at the surface is that the radiologically elevated material uh, may have been largely removed during the process of mining, but that's not the only radiologically elevated material um, on or near the site. Uh, what we find from a geological perspective is that the ore material was most often the highest grade material that was removed from the site, but there's still relatively elevated by our standards, but less elevated from the standpoint of being economically viable uh, radiological material that's left nearby that was never disturbed. And when we investigate these sites under CERCLA, it becomes a challenge from the standpoint of being able to distinguish between what's been disturbed versus undisturbed, uh, because that's ultimately going to be the line in the sand between what gets removed from the site or otherwise remediated versus um, what 
material we want to leave in place because uh, it was never uh, affected by human activities. Can you explain how your team uses multiple lines of evidence to investigate abandoned uranium mines? Yes. So the multiple lines of evidence approach that we've developed has been our workaround to uh, this challenge of distinguishing between norm and T-norm or disturbed and undisturbed areas at the surface. So in a more straightforward circle investigation, if you have where you're looking at radiation as your main constituent of concern, if there's radiation in the environment, then that means that's where your contamination is. So as I mentioned earlier, that's not necessarily the case on these sites. So you need to have other lines of evidence to be able to associate those elevated radiation readings with um, potential contamination moving off the site. So in order to do that, we incorporate historical lines of evidence. So that may be historical aerial photos from the 1950s, from before and immediately after mining activities would have commenced, looking at records from uh, mine reclamation work that occurred in the 90s, um, as well as looking at physical um, features that we see in the field. And this is really turned into the bread and butter of the work that we're performing, which is uh, feature characterization and delineation on these sites. So take, for instance, a fairly standard site that we may encounter. There may be a reclamation cap from when some of that initial reclamation work occurred. So part of the feature delineation process would involve mapping out the edges of that reclamation cap and identifying potential transport pathways coming off of that, because that's where we might be most likely to see um, interred elevated material potentially moving off site. We may also see uh, remnant bulldozer cuts from an exploration phase of mining related activities in the 50s and 60s that have been preserved in the desert environment due to slower rates of erosion. Um, and those would be disturbed areas. You had radiologically elevated material that was previously buried underneath overburden and bulldozers removed that away. And so mapping the extent of those dozer cuts, um, walking around the outside of the windrows, and then um, you know, looking at other transport pathways moving off the site. So mapping channels, mapping uh, potential areas where material is moving due to wind transport off the site. We also, underlying all of this, we also use gamma measurements. And so that's um, our way of very broadly characterizing the distribution of radiological conditions across the site. In some cases, radiation, uh, radiological conditions are quite low. But we see these hot spots and where those hot spots correspond with uh, mapped disturbance features, we can identify those areas then as being areas that potentially need to be cleaned up uh, during remediation. What are some of the options for cleaning up abandoned uranium mines? So there are a few different uh, options that we're considering. Um, some of these uh, sites are starting to move into that initial um, engineering and design phase. So the first overarching point to make is that any cleanup of the abandoned uranium mines that we're working on assumes that we've identified uh, those distinctions between disturbed and undisturbed areas so that we can adequately uh, characterize what is norm versus T-norm on site. So one option would be to remove impacted material off the site, whether that's 
material that was previously reclaimed that is now underneath existing mine caps or removing material that hasn't previously been reclaimed and hauling it to some nearby off-site repository. Of course, the challenge with that then is you're removing material that's already in place and having to be careful not to expand your disturbance footprint. And there's also the added cost and environmental impact of moving uh, many thousands of truckloads of material uh, to locations that are you know, miles to perhaps hundreds of miles away and finding a repository that's large enough for that. That's not a path that we've been advocating for just because uh, uh, from an environmental perspective, most of these sites are quite stable. Um, and so we're looking at a couple of other options that make use of the existing cap materials and also make these sites more resilient over both short-term as well as the long-term, but doing so in a uh, culturally sensitive way that allows the land to still be used for traditional practices. So those methods involve building some form of enhanced cap over what was already built on these sites. So the existing caps on many of these sites are built out of uh, bentonite and fine-grained uh, silt material that over the last um, 20 to 30 years has um, slowly eroded away um, and is not held up to um, the infrequent but intense uh, monsoon rains that can occur across the region. So these enhanced caps would involve uh, adding some sort of impermeable barrier uh, to the existing cap. And then on top of that, you would have some mix of um, more erosion resistant material, including uh, larger gravels that could uh, slowly compact through time and create a rock armor of sorts that would make these caps um, more erosion resistant over the long term. Um, this would allow these spaces to be used for either uh, recreational purposes as well as um, allowing those sites to be used for uh, grazing activities and restoring them in a manner that they would uh, no longer present a health hazard to those who are passing across the land. I think all of these remedies um, will assume that these sites would not be suitable for uh, home site uh, construction uh, just due to the prevailing levels of radiation surrounding the site that are not associated with uh, mining related activities. But um, you know, our goal is to restore these sites to what they would have looked like at, pre-mining, pre-1950s uh, to enable uh, traditional uh, land practices to uh, to resume uh, on and near those sites uh, in a safe and healthy manner. We hope you've enjoyed this interview. You can find Paul's full article in our updated Advances in Remediation ebook. Here you'll also find contact information to reach out to Paul and his co-authors directly with any questions. We also encourage you to listen to the other episodes in our Advances in Remediation podcast series available on the Arcadis North America SoundCloud station.